We're looking at the subject this morning, the joy of judgment in our text is Matthew 25, verse 31 and following. Firstly, you'll note from your bulletin outline that the day, the day of Christ's coming is the day of God's self-vindication. That's going to give us some clues as to where we're to obtain joy in this. Our text, Matthew 25, describes the coming of Christ in terms of a king, so named, verse 40, summoning the subjects of his kingdom to give an account of themselves concerning their actions. Now this king is none other than the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Verse 31. Coming with all of his angels, being seated in, on his heavenly throne, from which he summons all the nations of people, verse 32, to undergo the scrutiny of his examination and evaluation from which there is no escape and whose decision is final. There's no remediation from this point on. Now, before we read what decision the king makes, we learn in short order that among all that are corralled before Jesus' throne, there are but two categories of people. Verse 33, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. May I say, this is the only distinction that Jesus makes here in the judgment. That ought to tell us there are only two distinctions that count for all of eternity and they're listed here, goats, sheep. Nothing is said of race, black, white, oriental. Nothing is said of ethnicity, Jewish, German, Italian, Anglo-Saxon. Nothing, nothing. Nothing is said of education, philosophers, sophists, ignorant, untaught. Nothing said about that. Nothing is said of sex, male, female. Nothing is said of economic status, rich, poor, middle class, or millionaire. Nothing is said in any of these areas. The only distinction given is that of goats and sheep. But there must be something that Jesus is conveying through the use of these two designations. I mean, surely he's not talking about those woolly or agile critters that are part of every shepherd's livestock. No, these animal labels represent, verse 32, all the nations that will be gathered before him, or the next phrase, he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 32. So here we learn that Jesus is using these two animals in a symbolic way to describe, describe two kinds of people. That's why he's using them. And the description he portrays, as noted earlier, has nothing to do with race, ethnicity, education, economic status, and so on. It has nothing to do with any of that. Instead, it has to do with an assessment of the spiritual condition of the people who fall into these two categories, sheep, goats. Well... I wanted to learn something of the reasons behind why a shepherd would separate sheep from goats, which is also part of this text. So I did an internet search on an agricultural site, and this is what I discovered. Sheep feed on the fine grasses of the range, gobbling up every last blade. By the way, that's why the ranchers of the West hated the shepherds that were moving West in our own country 
because the sheep came in and grazed the grass right down to the nubbins and there wasn't left much for the cattle. So they hated the shepherds and we had wars between the cattlemen and the shepherds as part of our country. That's one thing. Goats will eat weeds, briars, and most any trash vegetation. I'm sure you've seen some of the caricatures of goats where they're eating cans and paper and all of that. I don't know how true that is. But they, they will eat the trash vegetation. Wool of sheep is more refined than that of goats. The famous merino wool, which comes from Australian sheep, is the finest and the smoothest and the most prized wool of any in the world. Sheep are generally mild-mannered critters, rather docile and non-aggressive. Goats, on the other hand, use their horns to butt and gore one another and others in an attempt to gain preeminence. And I can vouch for that. I was raised on a gentleman farm, a gentleman farm which means it wasn't our main business, and we had five goats. No sheep, but five goats. Those goats would chase us kids and try to butt us just for daring to walk past them. That's it! And we keep one, out, one eye out like this as we were going by, you know. Oh, here they come! Yeah, Pinky in particular. He had pink eyes, so we called him Pinky. And he would come after us. Sheep produce a mild-tasting cheese similar to mozzarella called Pecorino Romano. And many of the brie cheeses that you find in the supermarket are... Cheeses made from sheep milk. Goats produce a stronger tasting cheese called feta or feta. And um, many of you have seen those, particularly in Greek salads and things of that, the feta cheese. You can get it off the salad bar and so on. Finally, goats are belligerent, stubborn, defiant, unpredictable, whereas sheep are docile, amiable, obedient, compliant, and pretty much predictable. Now, that's a lot to be said just for the critters themselves. So when you think about Jesus using the analogy of sheep and goats to describe people from the nations, he really is telling us something here. And I don't have to go on the encyclopedia website to determine the nature of the sheep and the goats beyond this text. Because guess what? When we look at what Jesus says in the text, it becomes rather plain. For example, in verses 35 and following, Jesus describes the sheep and how they conduct themselves. And here's what he says. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Six things are stated here with regard to the sheep. And when the sheep could not recollect doing any of these things for Christ, his answer was, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Verse 40. Do we not see that what comes across here is the compassion, the caring, and the merciful kindness that is characteristic of the shepherd king himself? It's marvelous. It is Jesus' earthly ministry to the people of his day being lived out in believers to the people of their day. Jesus put it this way. My sheep, my sheep, listen to my voice. I know them 
and they follow me. They do what I say. They do as I do. John 10, verse 27. This is that compliant nature of the sheep, as we noted earlier. God's true people do not have to have their arm twisted behind their backs to get them to do what the grace and the goodness of God would want them to do. Not only for one another, but for, could I say it this way, anyone in need, anyone that's hungry, anyone that needs clothes. Now, in contrast to this conduct of the sheep, the king has a different evaluation of the goats in the narrative, and you'll find that in verses 42 and following. I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, etc., etc., down through each point that was used to analyze the sheep. But what a different evaluation. The goat people, like the goat critters, are mean-spirited, surly, selfish, giving nothing to satiate the hunger and thirst of the needy. Not even, can I say, a piece of bread and a glass of water. And so you can observe that the goats, like the sheep, they, they could not figure out when all this might have happened, they could not remember spurning the Lord in that way or being so mean-spirited to Him. And His answer is in verse 45. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Now the fate of both groups was confirmed and sealed by how they responded to Christ. And how they responded to Christ was evident in how they treated the believers in Christ. The sheep displayed the character of Jesus in their dealings with one another. The goats displayed the meanness, the anger, the selfishness, and the indifference of people who have no time for God. That is the point that Jesus is making. And the distinction, I might add. Ezekiel 36 has something to contribute here as well. The prophet explains that Israel, God's people, had been ravished by the surrounding pagan nations, and he tells them why. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In my burning zeal I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against Edom. For with glee and with malice in their hearts they made my land their own possession so that they might plunder its pasture land. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I speak in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the scorn of the nations. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I swear with uplifted hand that the nations around you will also suffer scorn. But you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. I am concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown and I will multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. Ezekiel 36 verses 5 through 10. These nations... The enemies of Israel then are equivalent to the goats in our text. The nations called to give an account before Christ and His coming. What they did to Israel then has been perpetrated on Christians prior to Jesus' return. Ezekiel reports, No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations, no longer will you suffer the scorn of the peoples 
or cause your nation to fall, declares the Sovereign Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 15. In verse 38 and following of that chapter, they will say, This land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Wow, think about that. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks for offerings at Jerusalem during the appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I, am the Lord. Ezekiel 36 verses 33 through 38. In reading a text like this it would become very easy to assume that the reason God's favor fell upon Israel, in this case the sheep, was because they were such wonderful people, so obedient to the word, so righteous in behavior and eager to do God's will, and that's why the Lord blessed them. But the context of Ezekiel 36 does not endorse that inflated view. Therefore, says to the, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Did I read that right? Israel profaned God's name among the nations? How so? Verse 17, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. So I ask the question, what conduct? What actions? Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all your idols. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. From the Exodus on, Israel had a history of ambiguity in regard to worship. Sometimes they worshiped God aright. Other times... They worshipped idols. Who can forget the golden calf incident? Just fresh out of, the, out of Egypt. And when they would do these things, God would judge them for their apostasy. And that brings a certain perspective, doesn't it, to our own text. Dealing with the final judgment of all people. The activities of the sheep in our text, which are good and kind and righteous and true, must not be misconstrued to mean that the sheep were all of these things in and of themselves. No, 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 no. Jesus said to the goats that neglected the common decencies afforded his people, who were hungry and thirsty and naked and in need, that this evil behavior was leveled against him. It's against him. It is Jesus, not us, who becomes the reason for the judgment or the lack thereof. And he judges for his own name's sake because we, like Israel of old, have acted in sinful ways that have profaned his name among the nations. But, here it is, since we bear his name and by grace his righteousness, Jesus' judgment falls on all who abuse his people because when they abuse us, they abuse him. Oh, this is heavy-duty stuff. And people of the world don't even think in these dimensions. We are not, brethren, righteous in ourselves, but as God said through Ezekiel about Israel, 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds, and you will loathe yourself for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed, be disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and following. My, that text, Ezekiel 36, has a lot to say about our text. Brethren, as Jonah so succinctly put it, salvation is of the Lord. And because of the Lord, for all the chatter in our day about sinners having to believe and repent and to be saved, and they do, they do, we should know that no such faith and repentance will ever occur unless and until the Lord gives us a new heart and puts a new spirit within us to love and obey God. The psalmist enjoins us this way, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, not we ourselves. We are His people the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with what? Thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Psalm 100, verses 3 through 5. The day of judgment is a day coming in which Jesus will vindicate himself. He says to the goats, you did it to me, to me. Zechariah words it this way. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. Whoever touches you, my people, touches the apple of his the world doesn't understand that. They, just think, they, they think they're smacking us around. They hate us for being Bible thumpers. For testifying of the gospel. For standing for righteousness. Zechariah 2 verse 8. When you touch my people, you touch the apple of my eye. So that's the first thing about this day of judgment. That God comes and in this judgment he vindicates his own self. He vindicates his name. Secondly, the day of judgment is the day of every believer's vindication. Not only does Jesus vindicate himself in the day of his coming, but he vindicates all who have believed in him. True, as with Israel of old, God acts for his own name's sake, but there's a wonderful fallout for all who bear his name. Repeatedly in the Ezekiel 36 text that we have read, we read that when God acted in judgment on the nations who had devastated Israel's towns and villages and livestock and crops, he did so for his own name's sake. He, he says that at least twice in that text. And that's still very true. But it is also true that in a secondary way, but in a very real sense, Israel was vindicated as well. Let me read. God refers to the land itself saying, But you, O mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel. For they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you. I will look on you with favor. And you will be plowed and sown. And I will multiply the number of people upon you, even the whole house of Israel. 
The towns will be inhabited, the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of men and animals upon you, and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you prosper more than before. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verse 8 through 11. God acts on his own behalf. Yes, yes, he does. But in so doing, benefits accrue to his people as he rights the wrongs done primarily to himself. Now I want you to look again at our text, Matthew 25. Look at verses 44 and following. They, speaking of the goats, the unbelievers, the persecutors, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or uh, uh, in prison or sick and in need of help? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, verse 40 says, these brothers of mine, that's who the these are, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. Matthew 25, verse 44 and 45. And the next verse, verse 46 says, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It's a fact that the world cannot get its hands on God directly. And so they do the next worst thing. They come after the people who bear God's name. I had the news on just this morning. I just caught the headline. I didn't get time to hear the story. But a teacher has been fired in the secular school system because, get this, she gave a Bible to one of her students. Whatever you're going to hear about separation of church and state, do you know that the Congress, our Congress of the United States, printed and distributed King James Bibles in the early days of our country? And gave them away, distributed them for free. Now we have a teacher arrested because she gave a Bible to a needy student. Peter words it this way, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. You're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. You get it? 1 Peter 4, 13 through 16. We bear his name. None of this escapes God's notice or his evaluation or his vindication. Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, Among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. All this, I'm still reading, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Reading on. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. And to us as well. When will this happen? He goes on. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. We have that in our text. And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on that day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. 
This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 12. You get it? When God vindicates himself at his coming, there is the residual effect that persecuted, mocked, and ridiculed believers will be vindicated as well. Because of our own righteousness? No. But because we bear his name. Hey, you've touched my sheep. The sheep of my pasture. It's a tremendous truth from this text. We need to take it to heart. Now the second point. What is the joy? I'm talking the joy of judgment. What's the joy of it? Well, firstly, there's the joy that God's name, God's name is finally, finally revered. You know, one of the things that smacks on the ears of every believer is when people of the world use God's name to ridicule, to blaspheme, to curse, to condemn, condemn God or those created in the image of God, which would be others. And my point is, if it bangs on our ears, if it makes us kind of pause and reflect, what must it be on God's ears when His name is used in these irreverent and profane ways? Well, we don't have to guess. I can tell you from the scripture, it is not a minor sin. I know that to be the case because we have God's word on it. Commandment number three of the Ten Commandments states, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Exodus 20, verse 7. How do people misuse God's name? Well, Leviticus 19, verse 12, warns against one of the ways. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 12. I wonder how many people have been guilty of this in our court system when they lay their hand on the Bible and are asked, Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And they answer, I do. And then they proceed to perjure themselves by lying on the stand when they're asked questions. Now, now that's a sin in itself, lying on the stand, lying. But the greater is sin is that they have sworn falsely, using God's name to give credibility to their statements, calling God to witness, and He is that witness. And what if they swear falsely? There's an account in Leviticus 24, and this is absolutely astonishing. Let me read it for you. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, If anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Whether an alien or native-born, when he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. To death. Leviticus 24, verse 11 and following. You think any of that's changed? 
Now the moral law remains intact. We're not to take God's name in vain. Paul tells us in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That name that they used to curse their fellow man, and that name they used in anger to protest their anger, that name that they used to damn this or that, not a minor sin. So, the joy, one of the joys of judgment is that finally, the name of God and His Christ will be revered among the nations. And it won't be Allah. And it won't be Buddha. And it won't be some of the 5,000 plus gods of the Hindus. It will be the name of Jehovah God that's found in our scriptures. Secondly, there is the joy that the wicked will finally and forever be judged. One of the things that has disturbed believers, I, I get it because we're taught to be compassionate and loving so on. But one of the things that disturbs us as believers is the fact that some of the Psalms, some of the Psalms, call down or pray down God's wrath upon the wicked. They are called the imprecatory psalms. Psalm 59 is an example. And somehow, I'm going to read it for you, but somehow we think that these words just don't, they don't seem to fit into the mouth of a believer. <laughs> uh, I don't know that we should. We should be, we think, we, should we really be praying this way? Well, Psalm 59, written by David, a man after God's heart, says this. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from bloodthirsty men. See how they lie in wait for me? Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight, O Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths? They spew out swords from their lips. And they say, who can hear us? But you, O oh Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. O oh my strength, I watch for you. You, O oh God, are my fortress, my loving God, God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. In your might, make them wander about and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and the lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. And then it will be known. Now listen to, the, listen to his reasoning now. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Whew. Psalm 59, 1 through 13. You see David's motive? While he enumerates the evils that have been done towards him, his goal is that these wicked people will acknowledge that God rules over Jacob. It's this business of Matthew 25. When you attack the people of God, you're attacking God. And so God is obligated to rise to his defense, David's defense, and that'll mean crushing of the wicked. You see, it's all a matter of justice and righteousness. He goes on, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? 
Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the land of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Rise, O God, judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. Psalm 82, verse 2 and following. Different psalm, but you see the, the concept there. We are ever to rejoice when justice and righteousness prevails and sin and wickedness is overthrown. Eliphaz speaking to Job says, The wicked said to God, Leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet, it was He who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed, and fire devours their wealth. Job 22, verses 17 through 20. And again, you get the, you get the feel from Eliphaz that it's because... The wicked are in violation of God's goodness. God filled their house with good things. And what does he get in return? Mm, kind of in your face. You can't do anything to us. We can do anything we want. You can't touch us. By the way, might I say that that, that is part of the residual conclusions of a gospel that just preaches, just preaches, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And the wicked begin to think, God loves me, God loves me, God lo loves me, and I can live like the devil, and God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. That's why we must preach things like I'm talking about today preaching on the judgment of God, His wrath and anger, His righteousness. He's more than love. He's just and right. Again, the psalmist writes, the wicked will be swept away, the righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then men will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Isn't that part of our problem with our judicial system? That the wicked seem to slip through the cracks and get away with murder while the righteous lose their job because they gave away a Bible to a student. Oh, horror. And we say, oh God, where's the justice? Where's the righteousness? At the destruction of Babylon, Babylon standing for the corrupt world in which we live, John writes in the Revelation, Rejoice over her, O heavens! Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets! God has judged her for the way she treated you. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Revelation 18, verse 25. We're supposed to rejoice that Babylon is finally getting its licks. That righteousness is finally being poured out. Justice and righteousness are Jesus' vesture. Again, we read in the Revelation 19 and verse 11 and following, I saw standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. This is not caprice, capricious actions. It isn't like, I got the power and so let me see how many people I can kill with the power. 
No, it says, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. That's Christ that is coming. And he's coming with justice to judge and make war on the nations. Let me say it this way. Justice may not always be seen in our court systems. Men are fickle. Men are corrupt. Judges can be bribed, browbeaten by those in politics. We're not always going to get justice. But justice Pure justice is coming. And in this, we believers rejoice. Rejoice. Every right, every wrong, excuse me, will be right, made right. Nothing escapes the notice of our God. He keeps the books. He's written things in the book. And that's just a way of saying that God has a memory that's better than an elephant's. He forgets nothing. Now, here's my question to you. Do you want justice in your case or mercy? I've heard people say, well, you know, if God just treats me right, <laughs> I'm sure I'll be in heaven. And they're thinking of the little scale thing. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Therefore, if He treats me right, if He meters out justice to me, I'll be a shoe-in. Now, let me tell you something. If he treats you with justice, you'll be like the goats that end up in the eternal fire of our text. When David sinned grievously against God, here's his prayer. David now the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. The scripture says that about him. Here's his, here's his prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3. That's how he prayed when he sinned with Bathsheba. He doesn't say things like, you know, God, I was, I've been a good king. I've fought your battles. I've extended the kingdom just like you wanted me to do. I'll put down the enemies. I took care of the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the otherites that would have destroyed your people. I've been a champion for Israel. I've been a good king. No, he says, I've been a wicked king. I've been an evil king. And what I want from you is not justice. What I want from you is mercy. I want mercy. And brethren, the only way that God can be merciful to us is because He dealt out justice on the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the cross is all about. God paying, being paid justice <clears throat> for your sin and for mine. Solomon, David's son, words it this way, He who conceals his sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses 
and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. You want mercy, you have to confess. And like David, admit your sin and your guilt. You can't go, I think I've been pretty good. I think I've lived a pretty righteous life. Pretty good and pretty righteous isn't going to cut it. Not with a perfect God that says, be ye perfect as I am perfect. There was one perfect. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one that did not sin, and that was him. And so he becomes that sacrifice that can pay for the sins of his people. If you don't know Christ today, trust him today. Stop standing on your own righteousness. If you stand on your own righteousness, you're going to get justice. You get justice, you're going to go to hell. If you get mercy, you go to glory. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Teach us the difference between sheep and goats. And the difference is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the sheep of your pasture. You've worked in our hearts. You've removed the stubbornness that's there. You took out the stony heart and put in a heart that beats after obedience to you. And you did that for us, not because of us, but because of your great love and compassion. There may be someone here today in our auditorium or in our radio audience that has been fighting and fighting and fighting with you all of their lives. And they have in the back of their mind that they've been good enough honest enough, truthful enough, moral enough to earn a spot in glory. Help them to see they need mercy for all of their sins. If one lie will condemn a man to hell and torment, as Revelation 21 talks about, what about a whole life of lying and deceit All those things are written in a book. And it's only the blood of Jesus that washes it, the record clean. Lord, come to that struggling, defiant heart today and wash them clean. Draw them to yourself, we pray. Firstly, for your glory. And secondly, for their good. Amen.